When Josh just read in uh, verse 22, uh, bear with my word of exhortation, we dealt, we, we dealt with 22, verses 22 through 25 um, uh, some time ago. At the beginning, we kind of handled the, that section in the introduction, kind of handling the history around the sermon and so forth. So we identified that is an idiomatic expression there in verse 22. Uh, uh, bear with my word of exhortation is really uh, an idiomatic expression of a sermon. And then as you go, he says there, for I have written to you briefly, and I couldn't have but to laugh when we think we have read what was briefly written, for now I have taken what was short and have made it so long that we have been in this short word of exhortation for a year and a handful of months. So he perhaps intended it to go a bit more briefly, but we have handled it hopefully in a helpful way exhaustively over quite a bit of time but we do come to the end this morning and that is this place of verse 20 through 21 where he speaks of a benediction to the church now when you think of ending a sermon oftentimes is early practice here you can take it back perhaps one of the most famous benedictions we would think of uh, is the Aaronic blessing of the Old Testament where Aaron did indeed bless Israel with this word of benediction and causing, may God cause his face to shine upon you. And sermons can, in liturgy, most oftentimes do end with a word of benediction. And it is read over the congregation or memorized by the clergy to speak over the congregation. The function of a benediction, as we consider from the Old Testament through the New Testament, and here with this sermon, it ends in a benediction. And the function of a benediction, why? Why do they do it? What is its purpose? Well, it is that it seeks the the function, and we're going to see how exactly as we work through the benediction this morning, but its function is to leave the church that has gathered on Lord's Day worship. You have come expectantly to hear from the word of the Lord. And then the, he who then speaks that word from the Lord seeks to leave the church that gathered with their faith stirred toward God's promises. To remind them that they have been blessed of God in Christ And they will, upon recognizing or seeing one another again, recall the blessedness of the Lord that went with them from that expectant Lord's day. So he reads a benediction, or he pronounces a benediction, to at the last foot out the door remind the saints of what God has done for them in Christ, that he has blessed them richly. And upon hearing the Lord's word preached to you, you say, indeed, he has so richly blessed me. And then the benediction serves forward as well to say, and he will, as you can rightly expect, bless you again and again and again. That's the function of a benediction. At least that's what the clergy or liturgy or ministers are seeking to perform for your sake in a benediction and to hear the apostle to the church is seeking to stir their faith toward God's promises and blessings in Christ. This morning, in peeling apart the benediction in our last sermon in the book of Hebrews, 
I want to accomplish three hard things with you this morning. So I trust. As I look out, I can't tell. I'm torn. As I look at all of the eyes, as I peer out into the audience, I am torn on the feedback that I am currently already getting this expectant Lord's Day 30 seconds in. I'm going to extend to you a charitable judgment in giving you the benefit of the doubt you're ready to work hard. But I see I have a lot of work before me. And that is number one of the three things that are going to be a bit challenging for us this morning, or perhaps more so for me. I want to define Christ's active and passive obedience. I want to define that. That's, that, that is my first step forward with you this morning in receiving well this benediction that is for stirring our faith toward God's promises. Number one, the first hard thing we need to do together is define Christ's active and passive obedience. Number two, explain four blessings that flow to me or to you, to the church, precisely because of Christ's active and passive obedience. I want to explain from this benediction four specific blessings that flow to us, each of us, from Christ's active and passive obedience. And then thirdly, our third of three hard things we're going to do this morning, and I can tell as again, I look out, this is the hardest of the three, and that is make it clear and helpful. We'll seek to do that together on this Lord's Day. The question is, I prime you with this thought, why should we recognize Christ's active and passive obedience? Why? Why not rather think in a more general concept of obedience? Don't we speak that Christ was or is the obedient Son of God? Is that enough? To say, He obeyed. Generally, without precision. It's not enough. It's not rich enough. If we are able to grasp it more clearly, more concretely, more richly to our account of what it means when each of us says, Christ is the obedient Son of God. What do we mean? What did he obey? What does his obedience have to do with me? We must get past a general concept of obedience. Lest we have a general concept of forgiveness. Really not knowing. What does it mean to be forgiven? Well again, it's just this idea. It's not an idea. It's a reality. Packed with actual concrete meaning to be forgiven something and as far as righteousness goes understanding the lord's our lord's obedience in active and passive categories helps move it beyond the idea of righteousness is a legal fiction i'm righteous in christ i'm not exactly sure what that means i'm not exactly sure how it works 
I'm not exactly sure of the category, but I'm found righteous in Christ. If we own it generally, we may hold it as a legal fiction rather than an empowering reality. Because it moves from a general idea into a precise category that by faith we see as we look to our Lord. And not a general concept of obedience, but in His actual, performative, active, and passive obedience. That's why we must do this. We must grasp and wrestle with active and passive obedience. So let me do that with you. I will do step one. Define it. Let's define Christ's active obedience. It's a must. And it's present in driving this benediction. So what is Christ's active obedience? Beyond the general, the precise, the active obedience of our Lord is this. It is understanding Christ's obedience as the positive fulfillment of God's saving will. Do you see the, 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 the weight of it? You're already you're thinking, your, your attention is being drawn to your Lord in the positive fulfillment, the pursuit of the positive fulfillment of God's saving will in the entire life of Jesus as God's obedient son. That is the definition of Christ's active obedience. He is in pursuit of the fulfillment of God's saving will. What does that pursuit or positive fulfillment mean? What does it look like? What does it involve? It involves his own self-offering to the Father. In our name and on our behalf. That's what it involves. He pursued God's saving will in our name and on our behalf. This meant his own self-offering. Secondly, what is involved? One, his self-offering to the Father in our name and on our behalf. This is the blessing that is read over you and will be read over you at the end of the sermon. The benediction. It is, secondly, his loving appropriation. His own loving appropriation of the Father's word in our name and on our behalf. Do you see what Christ has done 
for you in his active obedience. It is the positive fulfillment, the pursuit. Jesus of Nazareth pursuing God's saving will as God's obedient son. Offering himself to the Father in your name and on your behalf. It is his own loving appropriation. Have you ever found reading your Bible to be hard? Do you rejoice? As you pursue and work through difficult mornings, difficult evenings, difficult days to delight in the law of the Lord? Do you hail the name of Jesus? That he lovingly, in my name and on my behalf, appropriated the Father's word and will himself. Finding his delight in the law of the Lord. That is Christ's active obedience. In our name and on our behalf. Second, we're already through A of one. See, it wasn't that hard. I said it was going to be hard and it's not. Right? Defining. Christ's passive obedience. We're, we're, we're keen on his active pursuit of the Father's saving will in every aspect of his life as God's obedient Son in my name and on my behalf. Then unto his passive obedience. How do we define it? How do we understand it? It is this. His submission So you see, definition one was his positive fulfillment and pursuit. His passive obedience is his submission to the judgment of the Father upon the sin which he assumed in our humanity in order to bear it in our name and on our behalf. That is his passive obedience. Christ the Lord the Son of God submitted Himself to the judgment of our iniquity in assuming our humanity He bore that judgment in our name and on our behalf. This establishes in this brief definition of between Christ's 
active obedience. He did for you what you cannot do for yourself. Understanding Christ, my Lord, as the obedient Son of God, establishes for each of us, as we move forward, this understanding immediately establishes a present and a personal interest in Christ the Lord. It isn't for someone else. It isn't some removed thought or theology. It establishes a present and a deeply personal interest in Christ the Lord. By knowing, I said to you presumptively that he did it on your behalf and in your stead. But only you know if in this present moment his active and passive obedience is shared in, imputed to your account personally. In other words, I can state from the text what Christ has performed. Charitably judge that your faith is receiving that work and resting in his person. But I cannot receive it or rest in it on your behalf. Establishing it does, ought to, establish a present and a very personal interest in Christ the Lord. In understanding his active pursuit and his passive submission in the one work of redemption, there are four blessings in this benediction that flow to you as a result of his very real and very concrete active and passive obedience. Four blessings I want to highlight from this genealogy. And number one is this. And I'll state each of them in this way because they are because of that work. And we'll see how each one ties back to his active fulfillment and his passive humiliation to the one work of redemption. That without either one, we are not his people. We are not rescued. So that these blessings, four of them, from this benediction flow specifically because of both his active and his passive obedience. Number one, because, I'll state them this way, because of Christ's active and passive obedience... God is a God of peace toward those who have faith in Christ. 
God is a God of peace toward those who have faith in Christ. How do we get there in this benediction? Look in verse 20. He opens up as he speaks to a people united, again, charitably judged, to be united by faith in this one complete work of Christ. The person of the Lord Jesus Christ, charitably judged to the congregation. He concludes his sermon, as ministers do. Now, after all that we have settled here, being united to those realities by faith, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will. The pronouncement there is that God's wrath to the church, God's wrath that is very real has been removed. Is a declaration to the church. His wrath has been removed for those for whom Christ lived and died for. The gospel includes the life of Christ with his death. He actively pursued the fulfillment of God's saving will in your name and on your behalf. Therefore, the apostle stands in conclusion and says, God is a God of peace toward you. Because of that very real work of Christ. God has moved from being at enmity with us. Because of our own wickedness. The wages that were due. He has moved from that place of being at enmity. To being for us. Not okay with us. But for us. Not because he felt like moving. But because Christ actively fulfilled the requirements for God to move. Because of Christ's active and passive obedience. God is a God of peace toward those who have faith in Christ. Number two. The second blessing that flows to me in this very benediction, in this very moment of a sermon being preached to me, the blessing that flows to me, number two, is that because of Christ's active and passive obedience, 
God raised him from the dead. Notice this in verse 20. As God has moved toward us in Christ, because of Christ, He has raised the Lord from the dead. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. And then he states here, and we'll tackle this in just a moment, the great shepherd of the sheep. But notice how the construction of the benediction is working. He brought him from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant. That is, it unites the work of resurrection to His obedient sacrifice. His being raised is because of His active and passive obedience. What this means, if you were to ask Thinking in your mind. That's an awkward statement. That may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus by the blood. How is it that he raised Jesus by the blood? How, how, that, that's kind of an awkward consideration there. Maybe your translation says the other. It says... He raised him from the dead, our Lord Jesus, through the blood. And either way, you're left with this awkward thought of how exactly this blessing is coming forward. The resurrection of the Lord. And if we could, it is simply this. Is that by virtue of, is how we translate that. By virtue of. Christ's merit-bearing blood offering. By virtue of His merit-bearing blood offering. By virtue of that, God raised Him from the dead. Consider with me, just for a moment, that by virtue of Christ's sacrifice and obedience, He was raised. That means that the resurrection, have you thought of it this way? That the resurrection is a declaration that vindicates our Lord's statement on the cross. He was raised by virtue of His merit-bearing blood offering. The resurrection is a declarative act that vindicates our Lord's statement upon the cross. Do you remember what that statement is? That the resurrection affirms. It is finished. By virtue of that being true, Christ was raised. It truly is 
finished. More specifically, what? What is finished? What? What did the Lord finish or bring to completion? That He therefore was raised. Number one. God's work is accomplished. Number two, God's justice is satisfied. Three, God's truth is established. Number four, God's law is fulfilled. John Owen, the Puritan theologian, clarifies it this way. The bringing again of Christ from the dead through the blood of the everlasting covenant is that which gives assurance of the complete redemption and salvation of the church. His bringing of Christ from the dead through the blood of the everlasting covenant gives assurance that nothing is lacking. You're not a co-laborer in righteousness. You don't bring your meager merits to kind of tilt the scales of what Christ has so graciously provided. He was raised as vindicated, which yields assurance that there is nothing lacking in the redemption and salvation of the church. Blessing number two for me is that because of Christ's active and passive obedience, Christ is raised from the dead. Number three, because of Christ's active and passive obedience, because of each rightly understood of all that was required of Him and His passive humiliation in receiving what we had done in this one work of redemption brings forward number three. Because of His active and passive obedience, He is the great Shepherd of the sheep. Because of it. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. You notice there in verse 20 once again. In this benediction upon the church. In a charitable judgment. That your faith. Has only one object. That is Christ the Lord. He grants to you in this benediction. 
May the God of peace, he who has moved from enmity to being for you and upon you, may this God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus by the blood, by the merit-bearing sacrifice, and he calls our Lord, who has been raised right now to the church for your sake, the great shepherd of the sheep. We begin, if we would consider it, this consideration of the Lord being the great shepherd of the sheep. Where does your mind go in Scripture? When you think of the fulfillment of what it means that the Lord is your shepherd. And you own that, not in some idea, but you know it. As surely as you're standing here, He is your great shepherd. Yours from actively bearing and pursuing in your name, on your behalf. Humbling Himself to receive the judgment that you were to bear in your name and on your behalf. Who was therefore raised because of His righteousness in your name and on your behalf. You say, He is my great shepherd. Perhaps it is that we don't reach as far back as Psalm 23. First, we make a stop from Hebrews and we just go back just a little. And we go to John 10. And we realize what it means. That Jesus our Lord is the great shepherd of the sheep. It unites it to what? His active and passive obedience on our behalf. In describing himself and any what he describes as good shepherd. In John 10, 11, the Lord says this, I am the good shepherd. And he unites being a good shepherd to what? His sacrifice. His obedience. The good shepherd, he goes on to say, the good shepherd, I am the good shepherd. What is the good shepherd, Lord? The good shepherd is he who lays down his life for the sheep. That's who the good shepherd is. I'm him. We find out that that makes sense even furthermore, doesn't it? When we do take time to go even further back to Psalm 23.1. You know, that psalm that seems to only been, yet appropriately so, read at funerals. We go back there. As we hear Christ stand in the place among his people and declare himself as that good shepherd, we find out that that makes even fuller, richer sense in Psalm 23, 1. It opens this way, the Lord is my shepherd. And the first statement of the Lord's provisionary work, because he is your shepherd, you shall not lack.
But as we own the statement of Psalm 23.1, have we taken time as we rehearse its benefits all the way through Psalm 23, as we rehearse and apply its benefits, have we thought through the benediction? And we can only own that psalm and apply it so richly to our lives. Because the great shepherd lacked everything that he might bring all things good to the sheep. If I could highlight just a couple of them, and we could keep going through the content of Psalm 23, but have you waited for a moment as you receive the benediction that He is the great shepherd of the sheep because He lacked that I might not. That is, you recall in his ministry, if we were to go through Psalm 23, our Lord had no place to lie his head. Do you remember that? But as you are found in him, you find out he had no place in order that I might lie down in green pastures. I keep reading Psalm 23 to realize that as Luke explains, our Lord passed through baptized waters of wrath. You remember that? I am baptized in a baptism you want nothing to do with. In order that I might walk by still waters. The Lord is my shepherd, and I do not lack. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. Because furthermore, in Psalm 23, his soul was poured out, he said, unto death. But what does Psalm 23 say for me? He restores my soul. Finally, I just jot down four. That the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not lack is evident. That I don't want for anything being found in Christ. For he underwent the Father's rod of wrath. In order that the Father's rod and staff comfort me. He is the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lies down His life for the sheep. The Lord is my shepherd indeed. I do not lack. Who is this Lord? He who was raised by the blood of the eternal covenant, our Lord Jesus Christ. The third blessing, because of Christ's active and passive obedience, is that He is my great shepherd. Number four, 
the fourth blessing that flows to me, not because some vague concept of obedience or some concept of forgiveness, but very real, concrete, active obedience, passive obedience that brings genuine forgiveness of my trespasses and bore the wrath that I justly deserved in my name and for my stead brings to me number four. I am enabled to live obediently. Fourth blessing that comes to me because of Christ's active and passive obedience is that I am enabled to live obediently. How do we see that in the text of this benediction? I'll read verse 20 and then we'll pick up very clear in verse 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord, it vindicates, it is finished. And it was. The great shepherd of the sheep, who is for you, leading you beside still waters, who is raised by virtue of the blood of the eternal covenant. Now, may that God equip you Verse 21, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Working in us. Do you see he is equipping? He is working. That which is pleasing in his sight. And do you see next in the text there so clearly how he's enabling us to do it. How he's equipping us. How it is that we are pleasing in His sight. How? How is He going to do this? Through Jesus Christ. We are equipped, made able, and we do Actively experience the pleasures of God through being united to Jesus Christ by faith. This is what the gospel insists that He is working, that He is providing. That He is enabling. The gospel insists. We are not. We have to grasp. We are not successful partners. In the pursuit and provision of righteousness. So as to be due our wages. We are not that. The gospel insists. We are not successful co-laborers in due of wages that we have earned and contributed to the pile of merit. The gospel declares, insists upon that we are beneficiaries of another's work. It insists upon this 
simply to thy cross I cling. It isn't your active and passive obedience. It is Christ's active and passive obedience that ushers a benediction upon the church. It's not kind of, sort of here. The gospel insists. May God equip you with every good thing. That as He equips, you are able to do His will. May God work in us. That which is pleasing in His sight. How can He do these wondrous deeds in someone like me? How? He does it through the person, Jesus Christ. That we receive. And that we rest in. By faith alone. So the Puritans would say it this way. Justified by his blood. I am saved by his life. Glorying in his cross. I bow to his scepter. Having his spirit. I possess his mind. Finally, the response to such abundant mercy that has been shown to you, to the exceedingly rich grace that we have received. If I were to ask right now, what do you think the response to such a thing, or perhaps your own soul by faith, is responding right now? And I said, show of hands, who can guess the ending to such a wonderful declaration? We would all guess, I trust, as I charitably extend We'd all have the same answer. It's predictable to those who recognize no good thing dwells within me. And this is mine. It would be something like this to Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's what we would say. That's what we must say. And so as I read over you now to the church, the benediction that is yours, not by merit, but by faith, not by your obedience, but by Christ's. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.